The instinct is a kind of response to, it could be a place, it could be a person, it could be just an idea I'm, I'm wanting to explore. But it doesn't, I don't work it out before the encounter. The encounter is what creates the desire for engagement. This is The LPV Show, a weekly discussion from the world of photography and photo books. Here is your host, Brian Formals. Thank you, Russet. And thank you, David Solo, for hosting this awesome salon. We're, uh, we're really excited to be here. Tom, I'm not sure what we got ourselves into, but... <laughs> we're in it now. <laughs> we're in it now, and I think we're going to just uh, let it fly like we normally do. Um, and just to give our listeners a, a little bit of background, I'm going to read... Uh, give a little bit of a bio on each of you here. Um, so Kristen Lubin is a curator, writer, and editor whose work explores the relationships between photography, art, and politics. Since 1997, she has been a curator at the International Center of Photography in New York, where she has curated over 20 exhibitions, including two triennials of contemporary photography and video, monographic surveys of socially engaged artists, and shows drawn from her research in historical archives, including ICP's collections of the work of Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro. She is the author of numerous publications, including the award-winning Magnum Contact Sheets. And as Russ has said, she's a the new executive director of the Magnum Foundation. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Susan Micellis. So I wanted, what I want to do is I want to actually read you have in the, in the, in the preface of in history, I really felt like you kind of nailed it with this paragraph. So I think this kind of is a good jumping off point for us. Uh, Susan Micellis is best known for her committed coverage of political conflicts in Nicaragua and El Salvador during the 1970s and 80s. Subsequently, she has explored issues of nationalism and identity through the revisiting of her own earlier subjects and through the collection and interpretation of historical photographs and texts. As a result, the complicated trajectory of Mycelis' career has sometimes been reduced to a simplified narrative. A war photographer who rejects traditional photojournalism and puts down her camera in favor of mining found imagery and promoting the work of other photographers. However, a closer examination of her work shows that, from her earliest projects to her most recent, Micellus has consistently interrogated and expanded the documentary tradition and has fueled cross-disciplinary dialogue between anthropologists, human rights workers, and critical theorists working toward a new understanding of the role of photographs in constructing histories and communities. I hope that we don't simplify your career here. There's a really a lot to dive into. And I think what we want to do is use the book in history as the launching point into, you know, your, your, your body of work here. And I've been spending a lot of time with this book the last couple of weeks, reading the essays and reading the great interview um, in the book, going over the work and thinking about it. And something that kind of, got me thinking right away was this idea of audience and communities. And when I was reading through this book, I was wondering if when you guys were putting this together, if you thought this would a book you wanted to put out to have a dialogue with photographers, a dialogue with the documentary photography community. Um, Cause it seems like the way the interviews and the essays went, you were kind of like giving Susan's trajectory of her thinking. And it was really engaged with a lot of the, you know, issues that documentary photographers have confronted for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. So I was just curious if that kind of that educational journey was aimed at documentary photographers, because I know you're very, very mindful of, in all of your work, 
who you're talking to, who your audience is, who is this actually for? And that was kind of like something that was just running through my head as I was uh, diving into the book. That's very astute. That's an interesting <laughs> place to start. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing, too, that I was thinking about um, when you said you were going to start with in history is um, the way that the book was constructed in relation to the exhibition. So um, it was the companion to a monographic exhibition that sort of served as a retrospective, but was a very unconventional retrospective. And the book is an unconventional uh, retrospective catalog. It was really mm -hmm. conceived as a companion to the show and not a catalog to the show. Mm -hmm. um, and I think certainly in the exhibition, it was on my mind that ICP um, is also a school and um, that a lot of students would be seeing the show and younger practitioners. And I think the idea of looking at Susan's, the evolution of her practice um, was in some mind um, with the thought of, of pract other practitioners looking at the models mm -hmm. that she's created. Mm -hmm. And I would also say that the, the book though, the extended interview, I think I saw that less for me as um, for other documentary photographers and more what was on my mind is the way that her work, particularly in the 70s and 80s, was in the same orbit as people like Alan Sekula or Martha Rossler. Mm. But because Susan never wrote in the way that some of these other photographers or artists did, even though her work carries a lot of the same issues and she was dealing with a lot of the same critical concerns. I think it hasn't been seen necessarily in the same light because you didn't write. And one of the things I was trying to um, gesture to both in the introduction and in the interview was that you've been dealing with these issues and, and your work is struggling with these critiques that other people were putting into critical writing in that period, mm -hmm. but that it's sort of embedded in your work. And I mm -hmm. wanted to kind of pull that out in text form because I think for better or worse, sometimes it's easier for those ideas to circulate and carry weight in text form than they mm -hmm. are in visual form. Mm -hmm. And that's the same reason that I chose to transcribe and include as a text Voyages, which was mm. a film. Um, and not very widely seen, I think. Um, but so we had it transcribed and included as a text because that, again, was Susan's voice talking about Nicaragua and is so deeply thoughtful and embedded in that same dialogue about mm -hmm. um, the ethics of images. And I think th through translating these things into mm -hmm. text form, it kind of puts them out in a different way. Mm -hmm. hmm. Who are you thinking of when you Well, I think is that there's an early on quote when you're talking about 44 Irving Street and you said, right from the beginning, I was questioning the process. Why am I making a picture? Who is it for? What purpose does it serve? So literally right when you're starting, it's you're on that kind of path. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I would say the same thing two weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, and actually there's a resonance to what I'm doing now in relation to that early work. Yeah, that's, that was the first inclination was that that was the question, the power of the camera over the subject was very discomforting. I wasn't really sure 
of the power relations, literally, and then then also the idea of the frame and what was not in the frame, and particularly perceptually. So I was right away interested in having the subject comment upon them their own representation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they they wrote in response to the photographs. They wrote. Right. I didn't. You know, I I paired the photograph and the writing mm -hmm. as two objects mm -hmm. about representation, and that was that was really the first project in mm -hmm. photography. Mm -hmm. I think when I go to work in carnival strippers, immediately it shifts from text to sound, mm -hmm. and sound. I'm still very fascinated by sound. Mm -hmm. I think you know it is a again a very um, it evokes in a very different way than the word read, mm -hmm. and so. You know, I'm jumping forward and backward, but Carnival Strippers began as prints on a wall, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. a book form. Mm -hmm. And when it was prints on the wall, you heard the sound floating mm -hmm. in the spaces mm -hmm. where you saw the images. So you had the subjects in various interactions, mm -hmm. sometimes amongst themselves, um, the strippers, sometimes in relation to clients, sometimes with managers. So there was this world from which photographs had come. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in that excerpting. Mm -hmm. So the spatial immersion of the exhibition, which is completely different than a white mm -hmm. cube show, though it has also been seen that way, um, then transcribing to book form mm -hmm. was quite problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very, uh, in some ways, conservative. I would not change a word or shift a sentence. Mm -hmm. And so they are direct excerpts edited down from 200 hours mm -hmm. of tapes. Mm -hmm. And then you read them throughout the book. So that first book was also something different than what I'd seen, which were prefaces or forwards or at the back matter to photographic monographs. I wanted the, these voices weaving through and around the photographs. Mm -hmm. um, of course, interesting, ironically, you know, it took another 25 years mm -hmm for the CD to be in the back of the second right, edition right, of Carnival Strippers right. so you can recreate these two experiences, mm -hmm. reading words mm -hmm. and then hearing the way they're actually spoken, which mm -hmm. is quite different and powerful to me. You know, yeah, just absolutely. the, the yeah, presence absolutely. of someone who's absent except in, mm -hmm. on, in a frame. Because mm -hmm. so often you see the, the photo and you see the people in the photo and it's, you know, I think photographers really fall in love with that idea of triggering the imagination and people start to imagine who these people are and who their lives are. And it seems for you that just simply wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them to live in the imagination of the audience that you had to somehow bring them more to life or more into reality. Or is no, there an element or, or do you think? Or this you, is a complicated and thread maybe, I don't know, because <clears throat> it goes beyond the book as a, mm -hmm. a medium, but um, you know, the frame, I'm obviously very preoccupied about what I am framing, including excluding. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm working in a series, which is what I tend to do, mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to work images in and around each other to mm -hmm. complement, again, you know, it's interesting just hearing you say this was a complement and not a catalog. And of course, that was exactly right. It tries to fill in and around the choices we'd made about these three principal bodies of work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes things have equal weight, or they're they're just directional. They're they're they're, um, they're this intermediary thread. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't know. I when you when you're talking about a book form, um, an exhibition form, the the shift from an exhibition to a book form, and then and or or the reverse, mm-hmm. which often happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested still in how you include the reader mm-hmm. or the viewer. Mm-hmm. In the imagination, you're mm-hmm. still creating a transformative, hopefully, mm-hmm. sometimes more immersive and sometimes more distant, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, you're trying to transform something you've, mm-hmm. you, the photographer, have experienced. It's gathering elements of, which is so partial to what you've mm-hmm. fully felt. Mm-hmm. So whether it's in a book form or an exhibition form, you're taking that in and creating some other experience, again, for a viewer or a reader. Yeah, you see what I mean? So yeah, it's absolutely. those elements to me can always change. Mm-hmm. They can always mm-hmm. be, there could be more of them. Um, but that's the mission. The mission is can I bridge between the, the world I've just visited and captured some aspects of to trans, you know, carry somebody, transport mm-hmm. someone closer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I really, again, when I was going through the book too, I just kind of, there was this dynamic, I don't know if they're on other sides, but like of being kind of, again, uncomfortable with the relationship between the photographer and the su- and their subjects. But then, on, you know, you're also really driven by your curiosity and your inquisitiveness. And you, again, when you're going to Nicaragua, you're following that hunch that you have to be there, that you have to go into that in- intuitive impulse. You don't necessarily know where everything's going to play out. You don't plan out. Mm-hmm the projects before and you're not a conceptual artist you know you're following yeah. you know i almost want to say it's like you're it, you feel it's like it's a news instinct or is it is it something yeah. deeper than that yeah i think this is such a key key issue so there are two things that ricochet one mm-hmm. is conceptual artist versus someone who works with a concept and i think we really have to mm-hmm. be thoughtful about that because i think concepts the difference for me is concept comes Maybe I'm capturing and I'm not constructing. And technically, people talk about conceptual art as a more constructed um, body of work. But I, but for me, I just have a the instinct is a kind of response to. It could be a place. It could be a person. It could be just an idea I'm I'm wanting to explore. But it doesn't. I don't work it out before. The encounter. The encounter is what creates the desire for engagement, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. basically. And that Mm -hmm. engagement doesn't have a defined time frame. It can go on for as long as, in a sense, the Nicaragua work. And this goes back to the show, because I think when you asked if we were preoccupied Mm -hmm. and who was the audience, Mm -hmm. I think you were thinking about the institution itself and its and the school and who you were speaking to, as you just said, but I was actually, I was thinking about a documentary community that Mm -hmm. I'm of, but I very often don't feel I can be in dialogue with Mm -hmm. because I'm out. Mm -hmm. There's certain concerns I have that are just Mm -hmm. not the dominant ones, whether it's in the gallery culture, whether it's in Mm -hmm. some aspects of the monograph Mm -hmm. book culture, you know, so I, I wanted us to open up the question about subject in relation to object mm-hmm. making a photograph, mm-hmm. which is what Strippers tries to do. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about time and Nicaragua being a series of frames moving 10 years later to revisit people and people becoming, mm-hmm. having their own narratives, mm-hmm. time being a dictator mm-hmm. of 
narrative mm-hmm. in some way that was not in the frozen image. Mm-hmm. So Nicaragua was really important. And then also, I'm not the only author. And so right. Kurdistan really opens up much bigger history and question about who we are as image makers mm-hmm. over this larger landscape of time. Well, that's, yeah, and I really, it was, it was, you reference a few different times how you reference yourself, and one of the key things you said is you're a facilitator. Um, that you use that term that you're a facilitator, but on other aspects, I'm thinking, well, you definitely are a photographer. I mean, you're making beautiful photographs. Mm. We can't, you know, you are a photographer, curator, editor, historian. I mean, you kind of really, it, it almost like mm. brings you into that contemporary <laughs> conversation where most you know, photographers are doing multiple things and they wear different hats or curators, editors are doing these different things. And that seems to be kind of how you, you've been throughout your career and wearing these multiple hats, but it's all one, following one kind of like line of thought. So is that something, I, I suppose defining yourself as one of those isn't really necessarily important for you, but I think as I've tried to kind of dig through the work, mm-hmm. I kind of think about, you know, is she coming at this as a photographer, editor, curator, historian, or is it it's a mix of all of them, which really mm-hmm. is maybe what makes it so dynamic? I think that is one of the things that helped us structure both the book and the mm-hmm. show is exactly that. What you, um, I think the tendency is to perceive Susan's work as having sort of radically shifted at different periods. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that we were, that, becomes clear when you spend more time with it is that there's actually a great Mm -hmm. continuity. It takes different outlets and you have different strategies, but I think the core Mm -hmm. inquiry, values, interests are stable and it's just the strategies and forms that it take shift over time. Um, And so that's really one of the things that we explored in the show. just we, we've been referencing the show in a, a couple of times, and just to sort of recap, we decided to do. We started with the idea of doing a retrospective, but then Susan very quickly said, "You know, I'm not interested in doing my hundred favorite pictures <laughs> right, or something right, like right, that." Right. And it wouldn't have been at all true to her process, mm-hmm. which is so much about um, mining the same territory over, returning, deepening. Um, So we instead chose to focus on three key projects over time in which there are these different approaches. So the Mm -hmm. first one, Carnival Strippers, the second one, Nicaragua, and the third one, Kurdistan. And I think uh, one of the main issues we were exploring Mm -hmm. is exactly what you're saying, which is in some ways the continuity of the underlining um, interest, which is this engagement with the subject, mm-hmm. trying to bring other voices into the mm-hmm. work and, you know, whether literally or, mm-hmm. or through images. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is a key element throughout. Mm-hmm. So the book, this book actually wasn't your first collaboration though. Your first collaboration was, um, the encounters with the Donnie, right? That's right. So that was the first <laughs> time you worked together. Did I say it wrong? No, no. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> right. I have a tendency to do that. Right. <laughs> but that was, um, so that was your first time collaborating. I'm really, you know, we do talk about on the show a lot of the collaborative process and just collaboration is so important to everything you do. You're not, you're not the photographer <laughs> who goes out by yourself and you're just, you know, out wandering around and you're not working. You're collaborating with your subjects, you're collaborating with editors, you're collaborating with other photographers. It's just, to me, like that, that the power of collaboration just comes through so overwhelmingly in your work. And I guess I just wanted to kind of discuss or ask you how you two collaborating 
on these books, how that dynamic works and how did that come about? Mm -hmm. um, well, it came about... <laughs> Stop. Um, it came about, uh, actually, um, there was... The ICP in, I don't know, 2000, 2001 decided to do a triennial of contemporary photography and video. Um, and the first one was called Strangers. And interestingly, the theme for that was set, I think, late 2000, early 2001. But then 9-11 happened and the theme seemed even more resonant But it, the work included took a lot of different forms, but it was some of it was about the um, resurgence of street photography, um, encountering you know um, strangers on the street as opposed to you know studio practice. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, in the wake of 9/11, took on this whole different resonance about xenophobia and other issues. Um, and Susan uh, and uh, a curator named Antonella Palazzari, who's now at Hunter, um, came and showed us this project that Susan had done in the Netherlands and also at the Moi de la Photo in Montreal, I believe, on um, the Dani, who are um, a uh, community in West Papua. And um, really interesting project that was on kind of the colonial legacy um, of these people and their the way that their photographic representation over time, starting in the 1930s, had really affected their fate um, in terms of their relationship with the Dutch colonial powers and Indonesia, um, Cold War politics. Um, so we decided to do that, or I, I proposed with the curatorial team doing this project um, as part of the triennial, sort of a way of getting, I wanted to do this as a book with Susan, and it was a way of getting it done. Um, so that was our first book together. It was in the context of the triennial. It was, this was sort of an artist book that was considered um, Susan's contribution to the triennial. And we did a small installation in the show too, but really the book was the main thing. And that was our first diving in together. And it was an intense process. And I'll also say, you know, um, when we talk about photographic collaboration, um, there are so many people who are hidden collaborators too. You know, mm -hmm. I think what you see on the book is that, you know, I'm a curator and editor and I did the book and Susan's an artist and she did the book. But we know that um, there was Annie Borniff, the intern who did so much of the research and writing. There was Meryl Levin, your studio assistant. And they, you know, I don't mention these people just to be generous. They were full participating, mm -hmm. um, collaborating partners. Russett worked with me on the Magnum Contact Sheets book, you know, and did a lot of the writing. Um, I think all of these books and, you know, photographers can tell you too about their studio assistants, their, you know, fixers, their, you know, their, I think photography is such a, uh, by its nature, collaborative process. Um, Leslie's Martin is standing over there and, you know, has been a co-artist, I'm sure, on many, on many books too. So I think, I think collaboration is a really interesting Component. The reason why we're laughing, <laughs> oh no, to share. Uh, <laughs> no, it's partly because so this this work that becomes a book. It kind of goes back to talking about strippers, interestingly, starting as an exhibition and then becoming a book. Likewise, Encounters with Adani was an exhibition, and what it it comes from it it has its deeper roots are in this book I did previously, Kurdistan: The Shadow of History, as a methodology you could say of gathering. Um, images that are traces of relationships, mm -hmm. 
broadly defined. So whether or not a photograph was made by a photographer, an eccentric traveler, a colonial administrator, a missionary, an anthropologist, I was interested in seeing if you could create a visual history threading through all these different kinds of representations, in particular at that time, of the Kurdish people. I took that, I had independently, so that project went through the 90s, rather very close to the end of the, I guess in 90, I had, um, previous to that project, I had visited with a man named Robert Gardner, who was a well-known, some people say ethnographic filmmaker, or anthropologist, but very talented, did a very a seminal film called Dead Birds in this area, which was then Irian Jaya, uh, now called West Papua. And he was, he was there in uh, the early 60s. He had seen this work that I had done going back to Nicaragua and was very interested to see if he could put together another sort of mini exhibition, expo I'm sorry, uh, exploratory team to go back and find the people he had photographed in the 60s. So I joined that team and, you know, the Stone Age Donny, who were in transition, but the difference of seeing them in 88 and then going back with, with Gardner and the same film team in 96, 97, was so shocking what it's, I saw happen in that 10 years, that I had just finished Kurdistan and I began to think about doing something with a similar approach and gathered, I, I had a small commission from the Dutch for uh, the Netherlands Photo Institute, and I said, this is Dutch history, can I dig in your archives? Mm. So I took this process that I'd already been immersed in, and bizarrely very comfortable in that role of um, digger, literally. <laughs> That's another one. We just added another title for you. Yeah, digger. Yeah, definitely yeah. digger. And yeah. and um, started looking in the archives of Holland. So the commission allowed me to, the obligation was just to put together an exhibition. Um, the disappointment was there weren't funds to do the book. Mm -hmm. So really I'm coming to the process that the, from the other side of the triannual negotiated what are we doing for, and I don't know, you must have had 30 artists or something like that participating. I'm coming from the experience of having had this very rich research process, putting together a very elaborate installation of objects, artifacts, photographs, filmic fragments, um, many different kinds of materials, again, sourced from the original um, kind of creators. And... Um, Frustrated, So I had all of that. And in fact, I had already, we'd done the show at the Netherlands Photo Institute, had gone to the Moine de la Photo, and when you meet us, we're desperate to have that whole show travel to the ICP. Mm -hmm. So it's both an opportunity, but it wasn't what we were hoping for. Antonella and I were hoping to take from the Moine de la Photo and have a space in New York for this, the expression of this material. So it... Um, the opportunity was a triannual, and I think the fact that we made the book was really significant because these materials, of course, went back to the archives, institutions, donors, you know, individuals, etc. So, um, you know, the, the, the reason we keep laughing is because this wonderful world collaborator also has the negative mm. associated. <laughs> so I want to say, because we're in such an intimate gathering uh -huh. here, um, 
you know, the best of collaboration is you, you can't even remember someone begins a sentence as somebody else finishes it. I mean, you're just, you're in, you're, you're, you're complementing in such a deep way that it just becomes a kind of process that you're immersed in. The, the negative collaborator, we also know, associated. And we have a joke because Brian, I felt once we, they committed to this idea of the book, mm-hmm. there was some doubt as to whether or not I would deliver. <laughs> she thought so, I was the heavy who was oh, yeah. riding so her to get her book. I thought <laughs> that Brian was sending Kristen <laughs> down as the, you know, not, you know, the police. Is yeah. she really doing this uh-huh. in her studio? What is she doing? <laughs> Why is it taking so long? <laughs> and I was in mode of my normal mode is it's never quite enough and I hate to close things down until mm-hmm. I feel I've gone down all the trails and turned over all the rocks mm-hmm. and everything I had returned so I had to recover all the materials from all the people who had contributed in the exhibition mm-hmm. and then I of course if it's going to be a book it has finality the way these objects are then forever and ever mm-hmm. so then it meant have we thought about absolutely mm-hmm. anything and then and Annie also the and the news kept evolving mm-hmm. really so, so making a physical object is a, we haven't talked about it and mm-hmm. here we are bookmakers. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. you know, they're confining, mm-hmm. they're frustrating. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they also are incredibly exciting mm-hmm. because they give you a form to, to be expressive within. Mm-hmm. But, um, that constraint was mm-hmm. terrifying to me because mm-hmm. I was immersed in a process and there was a deadline that had to do with something else, not my own mm-hmm. process, a triannual mm-hmm. that had a deadline. The book had to go to press and before I knew it, I was in a time frame that wasn't my own. And so I would say we worked brilliantly together in, in mastering that problem. Mm-hmm. But that was a real process for me, you know, right, to because right. otherwise, what's the big rush? I just do it when it feels right, right. and it's kind of done for the moment. It's mm-hmm. a parenthesis and a process. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. component of that book, and I hope you have the chance to look at it after because it was one of the frustrations was it was really, you know, a tiny artist book that didn't really get out there, isn't well known. But the other, I would say, collaborating partner was Bethany Johns, who was a designer. And one interesting leap, I think, in if you look at Kurdistan as a process of involving archival material and then the leap to the Dani, the big difference between those two is that Dani does incorporate all of that historical material but it's much less text heavy mm-hmm. and it really, it's so visual. It's this attempt to tell this history through interweaving all these visuals, but very little text. And you'll see that each spread is a photo montage, is a very elaborate photo montage, most <laughs> yeah, of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're gorgeous. And that is, that's really Bethany. I yeah. mean, Susan had the idea, brought all the materials together, and, but it was this deep collaboration of figuring out how to weave them together, but you'll see the pages are layered with, um, you know, family photographs, comic books, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Um, r- well, it's the difference records. when you find the materials in, a, in and you're doing an exhibition form, it's a completely different way to, to manage the materials. Mm-hmm. I think the brilliant thing that we were struggling with is how to represent the layers. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the way the layers... You know, it's interesting, another aspect of all this about bookmaking is how much was changing in the context. So the Kurdistan is being done in the 90s. The big amazing thing for me was that I was designing with a designer in my studio. Online, you know, it was Quark. It wasn't InDesign. But, you know, the fact that it didn't have to be sent out to some 
And this was done with Random House, mm -hmm. who had no production department. Kurdistan. Mm -hmm. Kurdistan. Yeah. And then the difference was I was doing it in my studio. Mm -hmm. So anytime at three in the morning, if I had a new idea, I just went in there and was messing around. Mm -hmm. So the big change. I was happy about it. <laughs> no, no, I'm not talking about. Oh, you're talking about I'm saying the difference yeah. for me of Kurdistan, where I could mess around in my own studio, or say somebody who was going to modify the file, and there was a wonderful production, um, and and you know contributed hugely both my assistant Meryl and and also Dolly Mayeron, Mayeron. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, who worked incredibly hard on it. Um, but that was a very collaborative process, because, mm -hmm. but it was in my studio. To go to Bethany, and we did have almost a near disaster, mm -hmm. because she didn't back up. Mm -hmm. And 9-11 happened. Oh, no, yeah. Oh, yeah. You remember we had oh, the, yeah. after, it wasn't 9-11, um, it was just after that, there was the New York it was the blackout. blackout. Mm. And we thought we had lost the entire book that oh, was in her no. studio. Yes. <laughs> Yes, so, but and, <laughs> and the our only our marked only up comp copy because you know you did the the markups by mm -hmm. hand then was on my desk at ICP and we were all evacuated just like and couldn't get back into the building and we right. had a deadline <laughs> to oh, get no. wow. and yeah. couldn't get the the object. But you know what? What I was thinking about though, just as we were talking here, is that that was a that was a different process for me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and I think that. You know, the way in which a designer solves problems, the brilliant thing she came up with, with the yellow tabs, for example, because there was so much of multitude of material, you don't want the reader to get lost in these detailed histories. You want them to delight in the discovery of them. And I think she was sort of referencing, you'll see the, the, the text that is there, which is pretty minimal, is in these sort of yellow boxes on the text. And it was, I think she was picking up on post-its, post the post-its that you had all over the objects, yeah. you know, yeah. that you have these notations yeah. on the images, but they're a separate thing. Yeah. So I thought of her as a designer collaboratively, again, solving problems that the material posed. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely the visualization is different, but, you know, um, very important. The, I think, you know, the, the, for me, the studio difference was also a, a, a factor. You know, I think this, this is a, this is an, an important thing with, with um, making things, you know. Obviously, when you make exhibitions, you're making them in the spaces. You're doing mock-ups of a different kind. But a book, you can really maneuver. And not to have it. It's hard to have it in a computer if it's yeah, the computer isn't in, on your desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's somewhere else, you know. Wow. Well, I think we could Time for a break. probably go on forever. But we have absolutely some amazing books. Oh. Brilliant books that you guys brought. And we're going to take a quick break. Then we're gonna come back and talk about those books. So we'll get sure. maybe we'll get deeper into the bookmaking process. Sure. So. Right. And everyone is loaded up on wine and pretzels and what else other goodies people have here. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk um, about some books. But to start it off, I was like, obviously, like, leading off from the first part of the conversation, you two collaborating on these two books. And now you're moving on into 
a new type of collaboration with the Magnum Foundation. You've just been named executive director. You're still going to be staying on as president. So, Susan, can you just give us um, a little bit of background on the Magnum Foundation? I know definitely people listening, I know people, everyone knows Magnum, but I think maybe that sometimes you're going to conflate, you know, Magnum Foundation with Magnum Photos, and I just, I think it's good just kind of give a little bit of background on where the Magnum Foundation came from, what are your plans, what's the objectives, and those sort of things. Uh, so on the 60th birthday of Magnum, mm-hmm. um, the anniversary, we have, once a year we have an annual general meeting, photographers come together, deal with the business, deal with friendships, try to spend time thinking about what's happening in photography. And, and obviously, um, we're talking 2007, we saw changes, anticipated changes, that were really going to impact what I would broadly call documentary photography, be it more on the arts end or the document end, however you define the spectrum, people feeling that it was going to be very, very difficult to produce bodies of work, principally. Um, So coming out of uh, the Magnum culture, one of the things that had been invented, two things had been invented, and I'm saying my forefathers, the the membership of a, you know, this is a cooperative that's been around 60 years, Many generations. We now probably span five or six living generations. Um, the two means by which photographers could generate work and sustain work were either through um, what we called an independent project fund, which meant that in anticipation of possible sales, there were funds available for photographers to, to do what they were passionate to do. Mm-hmm. So the IP fund was a really important idea to us about independent production. Mm-hmm. Um, Parallel to that, there was something called the distribution system, which Magnum had 20 agents in the highest times of the 90s, pre-internet. We're talking all pre-internet. So work that was created, was edited, was curated by photographers or editors at Magnum, and distributed. And then that work began to exist, and there was payment for reproduction of work. So there was an assignment culture, but particularly important was a reproduction culture. So we were seeing an economic change with the internet that was going to really impact how are people going to work and sustain themselves over time in a a meaningful way. Um, So we created the foundation. The the photographers each contributed. We created a legal format. Magnum um, Inc. at the time had a very important sale of what was our New York print library, uh, which was what was circulating in the, in the past. And um, we didn't have the funds to endow the foundation for the future, but we had enough to launch and explore what was going to be possible in the future. And I think we continue to have to do that because nothing's stable, everything is shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, And I've led that initiative, and really this is an important transition from my view, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's one of deep trust, as you can see, from working with Kristen and and seeing her from afar and many other activities that she's had. Um, This is an important shift, but but principally, um, what we've done is tried to support not Magnum photographers, but photographers working in the tradition, the broadly defined tradition, and... Um, obviously, it's not surprising that Cornell Kappa created ICP and then grew the culture there to include, um, you know, emerging generations mm-hmm. with with new ideas um, to make work. Mm-hmm. 
to distribute work. We're as interested in public space as we are in, in books. We're as interested in just, I think, seeing what else we can do as a culture to, to speak and to share um, images, ideas, interconnectivity, and, you know, in, in an engaged way, because we still feel it's a very powerful medium, somewhat um, different than documentary film, with its own roots, its own visual language that we want to protect and, and, and sustain. And so... Um, and expand, I would say. I mean, I think that's one of the things that excited me most about the foundation was the way that um, it was seeding new models for socially engaged photographic practice. Mm -hmm. So that it was, you know, in this moment where um, the whole field is changing and there are additional constraints in some ways on photographers, there are also so many opportunities mm -hmm. and so much um, creative potential for working with new platforms. And I don't mean only digital, but mm -hmm. as Susan said, you know, interventions in public space, um, alliances between activism and, and photographers. Um, and so that was really exciting to me, the way that the foundation has been very creative about um, trying to push the field forward into a lot of these new spaces and through the work that it supports through grant making, through publications in many other ways, um, help kind of light the way for what's possible and expand the parameters of what socially engaged photographers can do with their work. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, I mean, I sort of saw this as, for Susan, a very logical next step in the same way that I think some people were surprised when she did Kurdistan and she was no longer taking her own pictures, but instead um, curating other people's pictures, that in a way it's like the next step, mm -hmm. right, is um, helping to make other people's work possible. It's mm -hmm. a very generous act, but it's also a creative act, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're helping to make possible the work that you're interested in, you wanna see. It comes back to that mm -hmm. central goal of curiosity and inquiry and wanting Absolutely. to push the field. And so for me also as a curator, um, that was a really exciting possibility to not only be at the end stage, um, but to help kind of you know, light little fires and see what happens um, and sort of seed some exciting creative thinking in the field. Yeah. So you one know, of those, oh, go ahead. I just ahead. want to forget one other thing. Another aspect of what the Magnum members offered, which I think is goes back into the experimental, is that here's this great archive of 60 plus. We're actually going to be 70 next year. Uh, a lot of work exists. Mm -hmm. And where is it? You know, whatever percentage is digitized, what else could happen with right. it? So other than photographers continuing to have the passion to, and mm -hmm. means to generate new work, it was also to say what else creatively we could do mm -hmm. with different kinds of partnerships mm -hmm. to access and explore the work that existed from the archives. So that's a very key part. And one of the things that I, in our first couple of years, that I still feel was one of the most powerful experiments that we had was with a small theater company called Working Theater who aren't performing on Broadway but performing in communities. And the people who write the scripts are coming from labor unions, etc. And a Latino had written a script about crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as relevant then a few years ago as it is today. And he wanted it to be performed in a Mack truck that would mm. move around the city. <laughs> yeah. And so you have this 
play mm -hmm. that is performed in a truck mm -hmm. in which there are people being smuggled across the border and you have mm -hmm. the two coyotes in the front and the audience is in the truck with mm -hmm. the actors. Wow. In, and, you know, it's a small audience, 25 or 30 wow. people. And the Magnum Archive contributed by having digital projections of the awesome. memories of those who were being essentially trafficked into the U.S. So this moved around the five boroughs. It was several weeks in different kinds of settings. To me, that was something that would have been impossible. We right, would never right. have generated, but right. the partnering of that, um, they didn't have the media, the means to pay for the media. So it was a complete experiment and exactly the kind of thing that we hope to, to continue to do with other yeah, kinds absolutely. of partners. I mean, and we talk about this on the show all the time. It's like the archive, and it's so deeply embedded in everything that you've done and like how the archive is always alive. It's not, the photos just aren't stored somewhere and not being viewed. It's, an, uh, it's, it's, it's something that's alive. alive to be activated, yes, yes, to be yes. animated yes. with the kind of creativity, not, you know, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So one of the books that we have here tonight um, that I think pushes some boundaries and is very interesting is Negative Publicity, Artifacts of Extraordinary Rendition. So let's read a quick description on this. Um, British photographer Edmund Clark and counterterrorism investigator Crofton Black have assembled photographs and documents that confront the nature of contemporary warfare and the invisible mechanisms of state control. From George W. Bush's 2001 declaration of the war on terror until 2008, an unknown number of people disappeared into a network of secret prisons organized by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. Transfers without legal process known as extraordinary renditions. No public records were kept as de detainees were shuttled all over the globe. Some were eventually sent to Guantanamo Bay or released without charge, while others remain unaccounted for. The paper trail assembled in this volume shows these activities via the weak points of business accountability, invoices, documents of incorporation, and billing reconciliations produced by the small-town American businesses enlisted in detainee transportation. Clark has traveled worldwide to photo photograph former detention sites, detainees' homes, and government locations. He and Black recreate the network that links CIA black sites and evoke ideas of opacity, surface, and testimony in relation to this process, a system hidden in plain sight. Negative publicity artifacts of extraordinary rendition, co-published with the Magnum Foundation. Its creation, supported by Magnum Foundation's emergency fund, raises fundamental questions about the accountability and complicity of our government and the erosion of our most basic civil rights. Wow. Okay. So that's a. <laughs> so now. That's a. Beach reading. Yeah, you're getting <laughs> yeah. deep into yeah. deep into some. Well, contemporary issues here. What's going on? So I guess on my question, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. You guys publishers, why is this book significant? What is that? Well, first of all, it's it, about it, to be released. Mm -hmm, and I'm looking mm -hmm. over there at Leslie Martin because she is the co-conspirator. <laughs> and that's very important. I mean, again, I was just talking about innovative partnerships mm -hmm. with working theater. Mm -hmm. um, we published, co-published with Aperture Afghanistan by Larry Towell, which mm -hmm. is an, an artist book and could not have existed without subsidy. Mm -hmm. um, and I really do want to invite Leslie because mm -hmm. we, we've worked pretty hard on trying to make mm -hmm. something that we don't yet know how the audience of readers mm -hmm. is going to mm -hmm. respond to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's a very, <laughs> come on, <laughs> Leslie. It's, you know, yeah, it's very important yeah. to talk about Legendary how partnerships work. So yeah. just Martin. the first stage, you know, of, 
of this was supporting the documentation, mm -hmm. the last stage of, of documentation that Edmund had already begun. Mm -hmm. He was nominated for these independent project funds that we have, mm -hmm. and uh, we chose to support the work. Mm -hmm. That was something like $10,000. That mm -hmm. got him to those last rendition sites that he had researched very, very in great detail, mm -hmm. working with Croft and Black. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a whole nother process, and I think, Leslie, it is appropriate to ask you to respond because mm -hmm. you and I had, <laughs> you and I knew immediately this was not going to be a monograph of beautiful photographs. Mm -hmm. And so, and it was a lot of work to figure out how, could, how do we make something that's, that readers will engage with? It has a lot of density. Yeah, I mean, I think my job was really very much at the end of a process of creating a project. And of course, for Edmund, this is one of three, if not four, uh, various projects where he's dealing with systems of power that are otherwise invisible, not easily photographed. And he has found really interesting forms for them. And I think of Control Order House, which is a slim volume created with his collaborator, Ben Weaver, um, of here press or here editions. Mm -hmm. And that took a form that was, he had begun with a very classic kind of photo book form with his earliest book of taken shot in British prisons, sort of morphed it a little bit with Guantanamo. And even at that time, I was in conversation with Ed encouraging him to include the letters and the documents that appear in that book if, if uh, people should go and look it up. Uh, and so this kind of circular feedback loop of looking at the work, talking to Ed, responding to what I see is successful, kind of prodding him to follow that line, I think is really the gist of what I did with this. So I think for this body of work, given the opportunity and the support of the Magnum Foundation to continue it, to follow it through and, and create the work on the ground, and then also find a form and to publish it, I think in a way he was thinking, well, I'll make a kind of more traditional photo book. I have like a little bit of a system behind this is going to push it out into the world. And I mean, I think, Susan, we just had a couple conversations and knew this is not going to work as a you know hardcover, fat monograph. And he, I think it was just a matter of encouraging him to follow his own instincts. And again, collaborator Ben Weaver to follow through on the idea of different paper styles and aligning the content with a form that made sense and became more of an interesting object than just classic photo book. Right. But that was a really important collaborative exchange, I would say. Endless emails. <laughs> endless, endless emails, endless. meeting, you know, yeah, in a few random places in, I can't remember, Perry Photo. But it's now a totally unique object that, mm -hmm. that you know, isn't obvious that it's a photo book at all, mm -hmm. in fact. And then you discover the photographs through unfolding the paper. Um, and then have to decode what they reference. I mean, right. you have to take and some, it takes work. It and does we don't take yet work. know the response from readers. It's early, it hasn't been released yet. Um, so you're getting preview yeah, absolutely. comments. But, you know, from my view, um, would this have happened otherwise? I don't know. My memory was that it wasn't obvious mm -hmm. 
initially that it was appropriate to make this into a photography book? No, I, I don't think it was obvious, or at least maybe Edmund was second-guessing what I think had already come out and been a really interesting area of exploration that he had done with his previous series, and he had let the material guide a form. Like, when you look at the... Uh, reproductions of notebook pages in Control Order House, they really look like notebook pages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we in, I, the next step is in this book, Negative Publicity, in which documents that were produced in the U.S. are letter size, and documents produced in Europe are A4. So, you know, there's these vari variations of paper sizes and paper styles, and it just fits with this idea that it's not always obvious how to depict these systems that are invisible and, and kept under these the guise of the banal and the everyday. And so why not use those banal and everyday forms to be the, the format and the platform for the work to speak yeah. from? Awesome. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to it. Well, you know, it's great. I, I think it's really yeah. fair to say it's through that it's creating the opportunity for mm -hmm. that mindset, the work that was involved in creating the work, mm -hmm. right, to have an opportunity to be as intelligent as it could be mm -hmm. in, in discovering the appropriate form. I mean, that's the luxury that one always doesn't always have. But mm -hmm. that's, I think, we waited. We waited until we found, we all felt, you know, Edmund had found the right path to the work. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Awesome. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Wow. Okay. Our first audience. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice to have people like Leslie Martin stepping in and giving you a little bit more information. We could go on and on forever. I think of Trevor Paglin, this is work too. On yes, photographing sure. the invisible sure. as well too. Sure. There's a lot, you know, to dig into there. Um, we should talk about Afghan Afghanistan's sign too, Larry Tell, right? So for 30 years, Afghanistan has has known only war, renowned magnum photographer Larry Towell presents a moving and in-depth look at the country whose citizens and landscape are affected by conflict on a daily basis. Towell, a veteran conflict reporter, has also worked in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Mexico, Palestine, and Israel. This work was shot between 2008 and 2011, offering a tour de force examination of survival, exile, loss, and recuperation. Here is a war seen from a variety of perspectives, from military camps to the domestic interiors, and depicting U.S. and British soldiers, landmine victims, ordinary Afghan citizens, cityscapes, um, recreation, addiction, and weaponry, as well as a rare series of Taliban portraits. So this is obviously, you know, Afghanistan and the war on terror is still lingering with us. I mean, it's still yeah. heavily. And what does it mean to do an artist book? I, right. I, you know, there are different ways to talk about it. I'm going to take this from another angle, mm -hmm. which is to give you a feeling of our process from the foundation. Okay. So Larry was, I mean, some, I, I, the emphasis of our funds is definitely on emerging photographers and regional mm -hmm. photographers. Mm -hmm. But we've never said experienced photographers are excluded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we get, it's a nomination process from about 15 different um, publishers, curators, photo editors who mm -hmm. nominate something like six candidates. And we get a pool of about 100 names mm -hmm. and we reduce a, appropriately to the most diverse group that we can support. Mm -hmm. Um, so Larry was one it, one of the people who received support in one of the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. He went back to Afghanistan. He'd done a little bit of work. He came back from that trip 
and said, I've got to figure out a way to go back. And that was right on the brink of Kickstarter mm. beginning mm-hmm. as, a, mm-hmm. as a crowdsourced funding. Nobody mm-hmm. knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. We certainly didn't have any idea of how to do a Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. We called Larry. He was already in Haiti. Mm-hmm. He said, I, I don't know. I don't even have a computer. He, his <laughs> wife does his email. So we jumped into Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and it was the first of six campaigns that we supported other photographers and other projects with. And we didn't have the funds to give anything more. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the second round of funding was from the Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. And that was important to us that he then finished what he imagined to be the project that he had invested Mm in. The next stage that's important because it resonates with what's going on in this room, Mm -hmm. you call this 10 by 10 is a salon. Mm -hmm. When we've done salons, we do salons that then co- feature with five or six bodies of work of mm-hmm. uh, uh, photographers who, who've done, we've supported in some way or other. Mm-hmm. And so we had our first salon and Larry took over a corner in the actual little room mm-hmm. and brought a gazillion Xeroxes mm-hmm. and many other things and had a maquette out of scrap paper mm-hmm. on the table. And people floated around kind of like you all, but three times the amount, about 80 <laughs> people moving in every direction, one-on-one exchanges or small groups with, with photographers. Mm-hmm. And then we all gathered for this conversation, which was mm-hmm. why, what's going on in photography? What are we going to do as a community mm-hmm. to support long-form work? Mm-hmm. And somebody in the group said, so what's the problem? Larry, that, that looks fantastic. You should publish it. And he said, well, I had just been to Aperture. They told us they needed $30,000. Uh-huh. It was too elaborate, and we weren't going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And in that room that night, three people volunteered mm-hmm. to support the publication of that book. So wow. that put us wow. into a great beginning relationship with mm-hmm. Aperture that did, did, the, made it possible for Aperture to publish a mm-hmm. trade book. And it's nearly out of print or is out of print. Um, Larry got to do everything, every decision he mm-hmm. wanted in mm-hmm. negotiations with very, mm-hmm. you know, in this case it was Denise, not Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, so he made what he wanted to make. The mm-hmm. only thing we didn't achieve that we thought a lot about was how could people contribute to what was happening in Afghanistan mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. than looking mm-hmm. at a beautiful book? What mm-hmm. else could they do? Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure that out. And I think that's another aspect of this process. Mm-hmm. You're privileged, you're here, you're reading something, it's very beautiful, you mm-hmm. turn the pages, mm-hmm. it's very deluxe. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that privilege? Right, what right. else could we, and that's I think when, with Kristen coming in, I think we're gonna find new ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of our question. Mm-hmm. You know, How does that process then lead to something in a more proactive way too. Absolutely. Larry had this fantasy that there was a little circus in Kabul that he wanted to support mm-hmm. and we could not quite figure out. And, and that was pre-Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I think about how much has happened in these last few years, you know, if Larry had been with Instagram in right. Afghanistan then, he might have figured that out and mm-hmm. wouldn't have been a crowdsourced funding just to kickstart his book, mm-hmm. but maybe another kind of relationship. So this is, I think, part of the experimental space yeah. that we're absolutely trying to provoke. So I should maybe I should ask you what are some of these new what are some of the, the new ways that you're gonna move into the future for for funding and experimenting with technology and doing these things? Because I think we were talking during the break a little bit about you know the internet and the role it's kind of played in changing kind of the landscape. And one thing I thought was very interesting. Um, in our conversation is that I read an interview that 
you said if Instagram would have been around while you were in Nicaragua, you would have been all over and you'd have been there sharing images right away. And you embrace the technology. 1995, we have AKA Afghanistan and that's, you know, <laughs> right when the internet's coming out. And I was just saying like, you go back and you look at it and now it's its own kind of artifact. So there's a lot to kind of like wrap your head around these days. And like even us in a different generation who grew up with the internet, it's, still extremely difficult for us to kind of like figure out some of these models but you look at instagram where there's some people like everyday africa who's got like you know two hundred thousand followers those sort of things and that's that's huge that's a massive audience so i'm just kind of curious so there's some of these ideas floating around that you guys want to tap into you're using kickstarter you're doing these different things what are the opportunities that you kind of see because i really think that you, you said Larry got to make the book he wanted to make. These, all these opportunities for the, the artist and the photographer to kind of be free to do this and fulfill their vision, whereas in the past, maybe a publisher wouldn't be able to touch it, and then what? You're just kind of left with it. So while there are a lot of the challenges with the fundraising, there are these huge opportunities mm -hmm. you know, to kind of do different things and, and what have you. Yeah, and again, as I mentioned before, I think the unique space that... Um, the Magnum Foundation occupies is the freedom to um, seed new forms and new models and to try to experiment with that. So, um, you know, not every project wants to find its final form in book form. Mm -hmm. I mean, some do, and some should be um, street demonstrations, and mm -hmm. some should be um, exhibitions, and some mm -hmm. should be archives. And I think. Um, through our photography expanded program, we've really explored that more the digital space mm -hmm, and the, the mm -hmm. possibilities that um, collaborations between photographers and designers, technologists, what that can produce in terms of working with those new platforms. Mm -hmm. But I, I really feel like I see our book publishing as of a piece with the whole notion of expanding the field and taking work to the next stage, you know, doing more than, you know, going out and covering a story, but really mm -hmm. thinking about what's the meaning of the work that you're doing and what's the life that it can have mm -hmm. in the world and how mm -hmm. can you bring it to another level? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the way that Susan has done through yeah, her work, you know, it's not just going out and taking the picture. Mm -hmm. Why are you taking the picture? Mm -hmm. You know, how are you using that as a way mm -hmm. to impact the world, whether that's in a direct way about mm -hmm. social impact or whether it's about expanding thinking about issues. So I think that's really where I see our bookmaking as sort of integrated with the larger project about expanding the possibilities mm -hmm. for the field. Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, so, you? yeah. So, I mean, well, COP21 is something that we did that's really a perfect expression yeah. of that, which was, you know, in December around the time of the peace, uh, the peace talks. The <laughs> you remember those famous Paris peace talks? <laughs> uh, well, we were sort of in yeah. negotiations with climate change. So um, we, uh, with a group called Disturb, which some of you may know, who are, have been working in the world, we featured them in a photography expanded symposium a couple of years ago. We're very impressed with a group of photographers Frustrated to some degree, not figuring out how they could give resonance to the world that they were witnessing, documenting, and they began wheat pasting in Paris, and now they have oh, gone yeah, to yeah, many yeah. other places mm -hmm. with these very large mural-sized images. Mm -hmm. So we took the idea of COP21 as an opportunity to find 25 photographers who had worked in one aspect of climate change or another, mm -hmm. different geographies, 
um, partnered with Disturb. We wheat pasted the images on the walls of Paris around the um, outer skirts of Paris. And what we added to it was a partnership with ITP NYU, which is Interactive Telecommunications Program. Mm -hmm. And the hashtag, in which, which you know, signaled a telephone, text this telephone number. Mm -hmm. When you texted the telephone number, you got a phone call back, which was the photographer telling you the context <laughs> in which they'd made the photograph. Yeah. And what the yeah. larger issue was mm -hmm. a fragment of which you were seeing in one mm -hmm. frame. Mm -hmm. And so, that's an example of something that only came through a, a combination of skills and desire to do something that was surprising, which was you know not expected. It's still a little strange. Mm -hmm. If you do it, they also call you back and then say thank you very much for supporting. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you know right, you have right. a feeling like you know yeah. there's a little bit of intimacy in a very strange world that we mm -hmm. feel we can't do very much about mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was a. When I think innovative, I think that was a, a, an experiment. And um, I don't know. Leslie and I are conspiring right now <laughs> for the third edition of Nicaragua. Oh, I'm wow. going to chop oh, up man. the film that I made of 90 minutes going back and finding all the people in my photographs. And we're going to do AR, wow. augmented reality. We're going to experiment wow. with what does it mean to go from seeing the photograph that's you know iconic or not, it's mm -hmm. fixed, it's frozen in time X many, many decades ago mm -hmm. and transform that. Mm -hmm. Using your iPhone to have a very different experience, that person suddenly becomes alive Absolutely. and talks to you through this film that I had done some years ago. Yeah. And, you know, that's frustrating because Leslie, first one, she said, <laughs> book sold out, let's do a third edition. Uh -huh. And she said, but no DVD mm -hmm. of that movie. Mm -hmm. That was crushing because when we talk about books, part of the excitement of Nicaragua for me was doing a second edition where you had the book pages, the photographs from 78, 79, mm -hmm. then this film 10 years later, and then the return of the murals 25 years later. So you had this timeline in a book that expanded beyond the pages. And that was the big excitement to me about doing a, a you know, the second edition. So Leslie and I are conspiring <laughs> yeah. to well, figure just, out a third yeah. edition strategy that uses something with new technology, but in some way that changes something experientially. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. you know, because again, do we think about Nicaragua? Most people who, most of you weren't even born when I was photographing <laughs> there. However, it's gone. It's, mm -hmm. it's not on the radar. It's not mm -hmm. the Middle East. It's not present. Mm -hmm. right? But again, the history is a lot. And I think it's interesting because earlier you're saying the book is so final. I was just like, not for Susan myself. So the book is not <laughs> final. She's always going to go back. Like you're out not going to leave it alone. You're always going to find new ways to, to reanimate the history and like bring it alive. Wasn't and, my and, idea. She came to me. Right. I, well, you've, you've kind of seeded these ideas <laughs> through your entire career. So it's, yeah. you got to expect them to grow and kind of in different ways. So yeah. I, I, we should touch on, I think we should touch on as well too, is the legacy series. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have the Bruce Davidson, which is the next one, right? That's mm -hmm. just coming out. Um, and Eve Arnold was the first one. Mm -hmm. So what is the, the importance of the Magnum legacy? Mm. And this is how, what is, how does this play the role in preserving, you know, these, like you said, this, mm. this rich history, this tradition, it goes back five generations. Is this, you know, a way to somehow write, you know, I don't want to say the absolute, but if your definitive kind of record of this person's mm. career, or is the intent something else? <laughs> well, I, I'll take this part one and then pass to Kristen, okay. because I think she has um, 
this is the this the, where that idea began. And Carol Nagar is here and mm-hmm. worked very hard as an editor on the series. Um, Andy Lewin was very generous in creating the opportunity for this research to be done. Um, it comes out of a couple of different things. Eve Arnold was the first woman of Magnum. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, you know, there aren't as many women in Magnum as men. <laughs> we know that. Mm-hmm. But you know, what does it mean to have had a family and 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 at middle age become a photographer and then? Photograph Malcolm X and go halfway around the world to China when it was completely unknown and et cetera, et cetera. I was interested in the lives between photographs, the lives around photographs, the lives that are sustained through photography, different than the Instagram feed that's a continuous right, one. Right. Just the resourcefulness, the entrepreneurial, um, the good luck, the the... You know, the stories that could be um, extracted in this case, Mm -hmm. Eve had died. Mm -hmm. Her archive had been given to Yale. Mm -hmm. It was being buried there. It was buried. It was boxed up, beautifully inventoried, and kind of dead. Mm -hmm. And I think all of you as photographers, maybe some of you will become archivists. It's a great, exciting thing to discover. For me, going to the library, Carol going to the library, others... Finding the little file cards that she had and all of her little notation of what she was thinking about, totally independent of whatever the photograph might have been. So we wanted to, again, animate the life around what it means to to mm-hmm. travel with a camera, learn about, and exchange in the world mm-hmm. through photographs. So... Um, you know, it's very different working with Bruce, who's very much alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> 80 plus, mm-hmm. um, but reflecting on his own process mm-hmm. with a different author, Vicki Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third is going to be Inga Morath, working with a historian, Linda Gordon, who we're very excited. She, mm-hmm. She's discovering what none of us, those of us who knew Inga, mm-hmm. ever knew about Inga. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I think you have some other ideas you may want to share about what that legacy series might mean. I mean, having worked with Kappa and Gerda Taro and... Yeah, I mean, I think um, certainly another one of the goals is to spark um, research and scholarship on this work. And I think, um, you know, for me, my background training as, a, as an art historian and then moving into photography, but more the kind of photography that's taught in academic programs, mm-hmm. which is not documentary and photojournalism, mm-hmm. and then encountering that field through ICP and realizing what rich terrain it is and how understudied in some ways it is. I think for Alinda Gordon, for um, writers and historians, there's so much there and it hasn't been explored to the degree that, you know, Walker Evans has or, well, you know, Ajay. Tell about the CUNY classes and, and the yeah, PJ. Yeah, so we had a, um, Susan and I did a course with um, the Grad Center at CUNY that was funded um, through Mellon, um, and we did a class on photographic archives, and we focused on um, Magnum and Magnum Foundation archives, and the students focused each on a different photographer. It was really, for me, it was really interesting having students do that kind of work because, um, again, there there isn't often that degree of critical attention and research brought to that kind of work. So it was really fun for me to be able to read the papers that these students were writing because there isn't that much out there. I mean, Russet knows this too from working with me on the Magnum Contact Sheets book. There are very few serious histories of this kind of work. I mean, there's just not a lot out there. And yet it's 
you know, the history of our time. It's um, the way that photographs got made and got distributed through the world um, is just fascinating. But I, you know, I feel like it's such rich terrain. Yeah, so one of the things I'd love to see us be able to do, we're not there yet, is to do more work with um, younger scholars or in the same way that we support um, photographers working in the field who are just beginning to get off the ground. I would love to be able to support um scholars and researchers who are interested in doing work on, you know, not specifically or not exclusively Magnum, but the history of socially engaged photographic process, wow. documentary photography, the distribution of photographs, photographs in the media. Um, I think it's such rich, there's so much there yeah, and, and there's so much to learn and there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of work to be recovered too. I mean, this is also, um, as there are a lot of people, as we know, sadly, dying from the generation of you know 20th century uh, photojournalists and documentary photographers. There's a lot of um, uh, passing of the generation of photo editors and people who know how the systems work and the processes worked. And that's such an important history when we talk about collaboration, all the people behind the scenes who make things happen. I, I feel like this moment right now is a really important moment for things like oral histories mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, getting, uh, preserving the documents, which we're also doing through the Magnum Foundation, is not just doing um, this sort of, you know, work that, of the biographical sort, but also preserving the history of the process and of the industry, because I think it is really important. And once it's gone, it's very hard to reconstruct. I mean, I know that also from working on Kappa and Taro and trying to figure out how photographs were distributed and edited in the 1930s. You know, people don't save that sort of information that just seems like back office information. Yeah, but yeah. if you don't know mm -hmm. how decisions were made, if you don't know, um, you know, how these things actually came into being, then you're missing a huge part of the story. Um, I think it's crucially important. Well, we, you know what? We look forward to the Magnum Foundation <laughs> podcast. Ooh, right on. Happen. Ah, all right. Imagine you may those. be the man <laughs> to do it. Imagine those conversations. Yeah. But I think these people have been waiting so patiently and listening <laughs> that it's time Suffering to, on the floor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in case you don't know what it looks like out there. Well, we definitely know. I mean, we want we want to get your questions. I'm sure a lot of things have come up and a lot of things maybe we're not seeing or thinking about that they want to ask. So we're going to invite a few Brave individuals to come up and ask some questions. Tom, well, it's hard to get up once you're down. Our audience, Mike, awaits. <laughs> we are wait. Okay, who is first? Just gonna jump in. Oh, great. Jump in. Do it. And your name, sir? I'm Nate, and uh, thanks for having us all here. Uh, I'm wondering, following uh, that train of thought, what Magnum and especially Susan think about the iconic image and the role of a photographer today. Like obviously you've gone on to do more curating and, and looking at archives, but I have a very specific name and maybe this is unfair to him, but Devin Allen, mm -hmm. uh, who shot the cover of time in the fall and like has, become very important to a certain age of Baltimore. Obviously, mm -hmm. Susan, you have that one iconic image that has gone through time and become a bigger story. Um, so I just wonder what you think about 
the role of a photographer today and going forward and and how well, that affects a person gosh, Nate, it's such a it's that's that's a big question that I don't feel we can answer in a full way but you know the first question is how does he survive I'm so glad that he was there that he got himself up in the morning and went out on the street most people don't so, you know, that's a real, you know, I, I don't know the conditions under which he continues to work. And, and that, that's part of what I was referring to earlier, because I think um, to do a body of work is different than doing a shot, be it iconic or just lucky or whatever, a sustained body of work, you know, what his opportunities are to do that. Um, you know, I think that um, iconic is interesting for me. One of the one of the programs we have is a program in human rights and photography. And we have supported now 28 fellows who are from outside of the European and American context. So they've not, they, they, they've not had any training, be it in Asia or Africa or Latin America. And they come together with, for a six-week program. Fred Richin teaches it, and uh, Liz Kilroy, who's also now at the ICP, and I do a production um, workshop within that. And you know, they go back to their home countries and they have to survive. And survival isn't just having money. Survival is psychological and feeling like what you're doing is valued. So, you know, building a community, and I think we're trying to do that through a network, and this goes back to technology. How can technology help us? We're about to do, you know, bring a number of them together to work on a collective project, dispersed where they are, but then working together using different yeah, ways different kinds of tools to communicate. But, you know, psychology of survival is, is not just, it's the psychological sense that you're in a place and you're motivated and then you can reach out. So it's all those layers of interconnections that I think are important. And I think his, he, he's an example of someone who was fortunately that, at that moment found, but then he has this, to continue, you know, so what keeps him going, digging deeper, so we really know Baltimore in a larger way, not just from one iconic image on a cover. You know, that's the body of work that we'd love to see. Absolutely, I, yeah, I think that's a very good point about the technology, it's not necessarily about just showing your photos on Instagram or wherever it is, it's like you're building those communities, that you'll be able to be in touch with other photographers, yeah. whether they're in Baltimore, or maybe they're in Nicaragua or across the world, and they're, right they're sharing a similar experience across, you know, those, you know, across the world. Across or those the different yeah. experiences that mm -hmm. are, who do you talk to? Right. And there are lots of all kinds of ethical issues mm -hmm. and, you know, challenges in, in many of these environments, as you can imagine, you know. I mean, one of the Syrian photographers we trained just last summer uh, had to leave Syria. Her family is, she's completely separated. She, she, she's completely disoriented being in a migrant camp in Germany. So she knows who she is and what she wants to do, and she just left our program, but she's in a scramble, you know. So I think how, how people kind of find a path that they can continue on, um, I think we're, you know, all of these are challenges. Mm -hmm. Instagram doesn't answer at all. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> Especially when it has ads every fifth photograph. <laughs> but we won't go down no. that path. <laughs> um, next question. What else do we have? Oops, by all means. <laughs> Come on up. 
Hi, my name is Cindy Burkhart, and this question is for Susan. You mentioned earlier about having a very robust system for looking at archives and research materials. Um, two questions, I wondered. When you're looking at such large amounts of information, how do you decide when, mm -hmm. when it's all relevant? How do you decide what makes the cut or the edit, what stays in and what doesn't? Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at all this information, how much does the information tell you what the project's going to be, or do you start by saying, this is my project, and I'm mm -hmm. going to extract as appropriate to, to my ideas. So is it the mm. information or is it you? And then how do you decide from everything that's there what's going to actually stay in the project? Yeah, boy, this is this could be a curatorial, like how do you figure out who's in the yeah. triannual kind of question too. So I would you think know? you're seeing so much and you're yeah. so involved in the project and whatnot, you obviously want to include everything, but how do you make those decisions? Gosh, it's so hard to, you know, to in a condensed way reference that. I mean, I one of... This may be an indirect answer. So I spent, in, in Kurdistan, I spent hours and hours and days in a place called Kew Gardens, which is the British archive of colonial histories, part of their, part of their history. There are other places too. And I remember that one of the things that happens in an archive, you have to ask for a very specific thing. So you ask for a very specific thing, but you don't know in what form it's gonna come to you. And this could be true going into a photographic archive we were just talking, Carol and I, there are 48 boxes of Inga sitting at the Yale Archive now. And the researcher <laughs> said to Carol, well, I'd like to see all 48 and she, in a day. And <laughs> Carol said, well, I think you could maybe do eight in a day. You can't do 48 in a day, right? Physically go through all of the folders that are in a box in a systematic enough way. So what I was going to say as a free association to that is that sitting in Kew Gardens, I ordered a document. It was a man named Major Knoll who was, in 1919, um, paid by the British to go across Turkey. It's very relevant to today because the whole country's exploding in conflict again. But at that time, he reported back to the British that it would be impossible for the Kurds and the Turks at that time, 1919, and funny enough, he was right, ever to get along because they were totally different cultures, right? This was right on the cusp of the Sykes-Picot agreement that came uh, in 23. So they were trying to negotiate. The British were trying to be informed, and they sent Major Knoll. So I was told by a Kurdish man that Major Knoll's diary, his original diary, was at Kew Gardens. So I asked on my little piece of paper for the, the diary. I get a book that's about this thick. <laughs> And it's not the diary. The diary's inside that, maybe, you know, an inch thick. To turn the pages of history, of fragments of information, letters and correspondence, and a million things I didn't know existed because they weren't in the inventory. So how do you make judgments about that? It's your, you only have what you've got, you know, some accumulation of, or sensibility of, wow, that's amazing, or visually, I just love looking at that. I think, you know, if you look at Edmund's book, he's, he's visualizing, and I did a very similar thing, these documents that are, there's no information at all. They're just visual fields. Right. And other people have, you know, used that. So it's your, uh, I often said to people, I'm like a needle, not in the haystack, but just going through a few little pearls and trying to make a necklace of some, give some framework to experience this work, it's by no means everything. Most of it's out there somewhere, you know? So it's, it's so intuitive. I'm not sure I can be, you know, I can only give you a sense of what it feels like to be in the process. 
No, that's that's great. I would just imagine since you're so involved, there's the inclination to want to include everything you find because it's so interesting and relevant to you. So that's well. I mean, I look to Kristen also when you get a gazillion proposals. You know, at some point you say, I can't absorb, I can't assimilate anything right. more. Maybe right. um, the book is almost 400 pages, and Random House said enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was way overdue on the deadline by multiple years. <laughs> um, the parameters so. were set. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. So, you know. Thank you. Excellent question. Thanks. Next. Who we got? <laughs> anyway. Maybe everyone's still, maybe one, they want to go home and maybe drink or sleep. <laughs> they could. Maybe someday when you have these, all the archives online, you'll have it's open source. Do you ever think about that where people can go in and make their own? kind of edits on things and interpret the information, you know, the way they want you to. Know, even, even think about the Magnum, like, because you have it now, anyone can go in, do so-and-so's archive on Magnum, put it up in editor or what have you, things like that. We did a project actually like that with ITP, again, mm -hmm. this technology program at NYU, which was called Two by Two, and they were making stories out of miscellaneous archival images mm -hmm. um, that are obviously fictional or invented and right, imagined. Right. Um, as an experiment, um, and anyone can do that mm -hmm. on their own, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Questions? Are you falling asleep? No, I'm still stuck on this. Oh, we have one. What on should up. we do that we haven't thought of? Yeah. Any ideas? Yeah. 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 Suggestions. Minnie. Hi, my name is Minnie. Um, I always thought you're extraordinary photographer, and for me to kind of have a little glimpse of the interview you did with Kristen mm. in the history book that you said when you met, um, when you returned to the stri strippers woman you shot many years ago, um, you didn't take pictures, you didn't do the interview. Instead, you're wondering how, what they look back onto their former life. Mm. So f what, is, what does it mean for you to going back and returning? Mm. Well, it, in each of these, it may be a little different. I do, you know, I often think, how long has it been since I've been back mm -hmm. in certain places? And, and it, maybe it's my own little landmark of my life and it changing and being changed by the experiences I've, I've had. Um, with strippers in particular, it was a curious thing because it was very early. I was very young as a photographer. I didn't know I was making a book or it would become an exhibition. I had no idea. I wasn't yet even thinking I would be a photographer. I was teaching photography in the public schools. So I had a very different, um, when I began to interact with them, I was very careful and I took notes of you know their names and where they came from and all of that. Um, interestingly, many of them had run away from home. So when we reprinted the book, which was just about 30 years later, I think. I, um, is that right? 25 years? It was some time, I can't remember exactly. Um, I wanted to bring the books back to them. So it wasn't only seeing them, it was something about their being part of this process of their being in the world that they wouldn't, not nece they wouldn't necessarily know about. Um, so the return is, 
you know, in this case, it was kind of related to the gift of a return, you know, in the classic way that when you make a photograph of someone, you bring a photograph back to them, which I continue to do whenever I can do that. Um, I mean, in, when I worked in the South, I, I sent postcards back of the photograph of someone. So it landed in the mail of them with a note on the back of it. So it's always been a kind of part of a circle of a process for me. Um, so sometimes it's, it's the thing, the object. You know, we haven't talked about it this way, but these books that I've particularly done with Nicaragua, Salvador, Chile, Kurdistan, they're all bicultural. You know, they have totally different lives in the cultures they come from and are made with. So it feels totally coherent for me to be interacting in this way, you know, with a return. I mean, the Chile project was in 1989-90, right on the time of the referendum with Pinochet. He was voted out of power, which was a big shock in Latin American history that a dictator would be fired. Or <laughs> It took a number of years, and just two years ago, you were talking about innovation technology. I wanted to experiment with an e-book. Mm -hmm. So with the Chilean photographers, we collected a lot of different kinds of material, documents that had been released from the U.S. government, contact sheets that they had, that they hadn't used, photographs that they hadn't used, new material related to the old material. So you saw 1990 in relation to 2012, uh, 13, sorry. It was on the coup, on the 40th anniversary of the coup. And we thought making this with all this multimedia was just fabulous. So we had this very collaborative via Skype exchanges to, to use the armature of the original book and create this digital book. We uploaded it, and maybe there were, I don't know, five or 600 people who downloaded it. And it kind of died. And I, I think it's a good place to, to speak to the 10 by 10 group because, you know, I think as a photographic culture, we still like the physicality mm -hmm. of turning pages mm -hmm. and opening pages. Like, it's you know, the real, the materiality of photographic culture is still a very, very strong one for most of us. Um, as exciting creatively as that was, it was a huge disappointment. Um, and as the Chileans said, for them, it was hopeless because their lines are so bad they couldn't even download the book. <laughs> right, right. And so yeah. they ended up using the, because we translated the book from English to, to Spanish to have it, bi you know, bilingual, they then made a book so now it's, what, 40 years later. Is that right? God, no, not 40 years later. 20-something. 20, 20 I can't get my years right. Um, they made a Spanish edition of the book we made in 1990 because there was no Spanish publisher then interested. So here we are. 20 years later, they're, they're going back to the original book. They don't add anything to it except translate it into Spanish. And they want that physical history of that period of time under Pinochet from 73 to 90 in their hands in their homes. So I think that tells us a lot about books, you know, that how powerful are as, you know, touchstones and memory paths and maybe that's why we're all here yeah, tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something we talk about all the time. Like maybe, you know, for photographers, the importance of just making the physical book or making the prints is like maybe the book doesn't go on to be on the best 10 list or it doesn't go out and make ways, but you have the photos and you have you know, the book there and it's, it's, it shows your process, the way you're working. So just the importance of just physically doing it for photographers and how it changes the way you think, you know. So there's a lot of different 
as you've kind of demonstrated here, a lot of different ways, you know, a book can be important. It's not necessarily just about becoming the object mm. and being collected. It has so many more, you know, different mm. applications and different ways that it can exist in the world and be important to photographers and to audiences. Yeah. It's interesting mm. making and collecting and I'm seeing David and he has empty shelves. I don't have any more, I don't have any more <laughs> empty shelves and I don't have any more empty walls for shelves. Uh, so, you know, I think the only downside about books um, and it's a so it's a, maybe it's a it's a good place to end too yeah, because yeah. so Aperture has a bazaar every year mm -hmm. in which they're selling both new books and old books and we, and the Magnum Foundation has been gifted books from Magnum photographers and other photographers and we're not selling them because they're vintage collectors copies we want to share in the circle of bookmaking and so we have contributed in the bazaar each year to pass on this legacy of bookmaking so Absolutely. it's kind of a a very shared history that we have with all of you is, is something about, again, creating, collecting, or gifting mm -hmm. books is still a very, very strong culture. How are we doing, Rasset? I think we that's a wonderful place to kind of tie it all up. Great, Rasset. Thank you so much. Thank you. Susan, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us. You can go behind the scenes of this episode, see the work of our guests and the photos we discussed by visiting our Tumblr and lpvshow.com. If you'd like to support the production of the show, this year we are offering a subscription for $20. As a subscriber, you will get exclusive access to our weekly email newsletter, which will contain a bonus conversation about some of the interesting stories we find on the web. Also, at the end of the year, we'll be raffling off three awesome photo books exclusively to our subscribers. We appreciate your support and hope you continue to enjoy the show. If you have any questions, please feel free to send them to info at lpvshow.com or connect with us on Twitter at lpvshow. The LPV Show is executive produced by Brian Formals and Tom Starkweather. Our score is by Tom Starkweather, who also mixes the show. Special thanks to Eddie Volanti and Brett A. Davis. Thanks for listening.